Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 379. This program is dedicated to the merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menuchalena and Miriam Baschayasar Altesh and Yikusil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Basliba Farkash. It's dedicated by Pinchas Tadres ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altesh. Today is Yud Kislev. The Chag the day of the redemption of the Mitla Rebbe. Yesterday was the Mitla Rebbe's birthday and yard site. The Geula, which is the Mitla Rebbe was arrested and then freed, was a year before he passed away. And therefore, it never became that year such a great simcha because it was literally a day after the Histalkus. So the Mitla Rebbe passed, it was redeemed. A year later, Tes Kislev, Mitla Rebbe was an Histalik. Yud Kislev was literally the first day after the Histalkus. However, as the Rebbe explains, that doesn't diminish the Geula, it just meant that that year it did not take hold in the fullest sense of the word, the mysterious ways of Hashem, because it was literally in the Shiva, the first day after the Istalkos. But it's the Chag HaGa'ula. And uh, let's begin with the question, so what did this Chag HaGa'ula, this redemption, add to Yutas Kislev? Yutas Kislev, we know, was not just because the Alter Rebbe was arrested because others uh, informed on him, it was because in heaven there was a uh, kitrug, a type of complaint, a resistance to spreading chsidis. So now when we say, so then once he was redeemed, Al-Tarebbe, then now the doors are open. So what did the Gula add here? Of course there was another technical reason. Again, they were arrested him. It says in some places that uh, Yutas Kislev was a, was a Kitrug Achsidis, and Yut Kislev was a Kitrug on a Rebbe, the concept of a Rebbe. So that's one explanation. But in the matter of the revelation of Chsidis, the Rebbe explains in a very powerful sikh in uh, Yud Kislev, Tov Shemem Zayin. It's printed in Sefer HaSikhah's Tov Shemem Zayin, that since the Mitla Rebbe's Inyan was Bina, the Alter Rebbe was Chochmah, so the Geula of the Mitla Rebbe was in the Hispastus, in the expansion and the dissemination. Yafutsu Maynesecha Chutsu, Yafutsu. Maynesecha Chsidah says is Chochmah. Maynesecha could still be drops, very intense and concentrated drops. But Yafutsu means spreading it outward, which is Bina, Recheva Sanor, like the expansiveness of a river. And that is what the Mitla Rebbe accomplished. So the Geula, the Mitla Rebbe was a Geula in that context. And we see the Mitla Rebbe's Chesidus, the expansiveness of literally everything the Alter Rebbe taught, the Mitla Rebbe expanded on ten times sometimes. For every page of the Alter Rebbe could be five pages, ten pages of the Mitla Rebbe. In addition, the Mitla Rebbe published many, many works of Chassidus. The Alter Rebbe published Tanya. And we have the Mamarim that he delivered. But Lekutta Teira and Lekutta Teira were printed later. They were collected from his Mamarim that he delivered. The Mitla Rebbe published many Svarim. Just to name a few, the Sidrim Dach, which he collected all the Mamarim that the Alter Rebbe had said uh, around Sidr. Yabiri Hazer, the Alter Rebbe's Mamarim, Manzayar. You have Imre Bina, you have the Shari Eira, you have Sharha, Shar 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 Sh
פירוש המילס, בעד קדש, פרקי החיוורים, and I haven't even mentioned them all, שערי ייחוד, שער אמונה, literally books upon books that the Mitler Rebbe published, which personifies and captures this idea of Bina, of spreading it out, because what's in the Sefer, and especially when it's elaborate, that is ultimately the Geula of, of Bina, so to speak, of Chassidus. So Yud Kislev, therefore, in a very practical, how do we apply it? It's a day of expanding our learning of Chassidus. Simply going into these waters, into the rivers, the expansive rivers, you just open up a mimer from the Mitla Rebbe, which is obviously an appropriate thing to do today, as well as yesterday. If you didn't do it completely yesterday, you can still complete it today. And just get a taste of this breitkeit, uh, of this harchava, this expansiveness of chassidus, and just a taste of it is also something. But obviously, if you have more time, you can delve yourself further into it. It's quite an experience. It's like literally being submerged in a river in, a, in waters of Primus uh, Satera and it elevates and refines and everything that Chassidus accomplishes in our lives. So of course Chassidus applied. We obviously focus on everything Chassidus related. So Yud Kislev is the Geula, the connection, the Geula of the, mit, of the Mitla Rebbe. And its, and its relevance to our lives today. So Sometimes a way to appreciate something is by looking, what, if, what is if we, God forbid, didn't have it? If we only had the Alter Rebbe's Maimorim, so obviously the Alter Rebbe laid out the whole groundwork of Chassidus Chabad. But still, when you look in retrospect, you see what each of the Rebbeim added. You could see how the Mitla Rebbe added a whole dimension to it, which is all in there. Remember, Bina is just revealing with that which is in Chochmah. Chochmah is in the Nakuda, like a kernel a seed, a, a spark, a flash, so Bina is all in there, but in the seed you don't see the tree until the tree grows. And then when you see how the, the Mitla Rebbe expands upon the principles that the Alta Rebbe presented, you can really appreciate. And you see then the, the Chachm and Bina coming together, as they say the expression is, that they're like two friends that cannot, that cannot, that cannot be separated. Because they each complement each other. Okay. We will then go to now, since it's also Pasha's Vayishlach. So let's talk about Pasha Vayishlach. Yeah. So, first, a general um, introduction. Every Pasha has its a, a central lesson. The story of Vayishlach is, of course, the continuing saga of Yaakov's journeys. After he left his home, two chapters back, the end of Teldus, escaping from Esav, and also to go find a wife and build a family. So indeed, in last week's parsha, that's exactly what he did by Lava and spent 20 years and built a full family. The only, the only tribe that wasn't born yet is Binyamin, who would be born back in Yisrael. So now Yaakov is on his way back. The last week's chapter ends Yaakov Halachudarke. Yaakov went on his way. And where did he go? He's returning back. But now, of course, comes the big day, the, the, anticipate, the anticipated, dreaded day, what will happen when he meets Esau. So the Pasha begins, Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim. Yaakov sends two interpretations, either Malachim, actual angels, or messenger, Shluchim, to go see ahead what is happening. Where is Esau at? So Chassidus explains that Yaakov hoped 
and believed and uh, thought that Asa was already refined and were ready to go to the Gula. However, the messengers come back that Asa is marching with 400 men. In other words, he's ready to go to confront uh, Yaakov. So Yaakov does this. He prepares. He davens to Hashem. He prays to God. He prepares a bribe to appease Esav. And he prepares for war. And then the continuing story is how they ultimately meet. And the appeasement was enough. There was no need for war. The prayer and the appeasement worked. Yaakov and Esav reconcile different opinions, how deep the reconciliation was, how complete it was. Regardless, Esav says to Yaakov, okay, now that we are back together, why don't we come, come live near me? Come live where I am. And Yaakov responds, the children are young, the sheep are tender. I, you go ahead and I will come. Rashi immediately comments, one second, another lie. We already had enough deception in the previous chapter. He knows he's not going. So Yaakov says, so Rashi says, no. He was going, and he was saying the truth. We're not ready yet. We will go when Mashiach comes. We will rejoin and reunite. And then the continuing story we have, the story with Dina and Shechem. And obviously there are more details. The general lesson to us, because Maisa of a similar bonim, the actions of our, of our patriarchs, of our ancestors, of our fathers, are assigned to us so in other words, their journey is our journey. Is that each of us also has a different confrontations in our lives. There's the confrontation with Lavan. And there it turns out that not just Yaakov did not get hurt. He actually thrived. He built a great family, the Shvatim. So we too, as we come into this world, as I explained last week, the Rechaim, it indicates on the Yeridus HaNesham Beguf, the descent of this, every soul to this world. And we come out stronger, even though initially we may be afraid, but God is with us. And then, as God promises Yaakov, and we start seeing it in the birth of his children, and now he's coming back. But But the story is not over. Especially Yaakov goes through many trials and tribulations, as we know. And the next now is Esau. So here too, if to be prudent, you have to send Shluchim. As the Rebbe explains, in the context of Shluchim, what is the role of Shluchim? especially shluchim in our generation, both shluchim physically as well as figuratively, is that we go and look what is the landscape like. The shluchim are there to check out what the world is like, and they see hostility. So when you see hostility, you have to prepare for it. And you prepare in all possible ways. First, through davening, connecting to God. Second, sometimes you have to prepare an appeasement. The nefesh abam is the animal soul, of representing that, has to sometimes be appeased, not surrender to it and not compromise yourself, but to make it feel comfortable, like Siddhis explains. The Nevashalikis, the divine soul, has to explain to the animal soul why it's good for you as well to be close to God and join me. And indeed, he's successful to some extent, but it's not over. Yaakov realizes, even though he would have hoped and wanted and believed initially that Esau was ready for the Gula, it's not ready yet. It needs more time. And more time with the thousands of years that passed since. And as the Rebbe explains, now we're already at a point where we are ready to reconcile. In a very powerful sikh of Ayeshev, Tovshinun Beis. The Rebbe speaks about France, how the Alter Rebbe was opposed to France in winning the war 
against Russia in 1812 uh, because France was presenting physical comforts or at least physical freedoms would be easier for the Jews physically, but spiritually they presented, represented a godless society. Alexander of Russia, it physically would have been far more difficult, and it was far more difficult, but spiritually the Alter Rebbe felt it would be more intact for the Jews. The Rebbe says in that Sikh of Ayeshev Nubez, that was then, but just like with Esav and Yaakov, now we're ready to enter the world of Esav Edom, the Western world with all its challenges, and now we have the strength to transform it. So we don't have to avoid it, as it was in the time of the Alter Rebbe, which is like a microcosm of the bigger picture. So the story of Ayishlach is really the story of our time in history, and that we are ready now at this point, yes, to reconcile and reconnect. And what does that mean? By transforming Elam Hazah, Edom, Esav, Ishmachama, that that too should become a Cholavavcha, Vishnei Yitzarecha, which means when both sides, the Nefesh Alikis and Nefesh Shabam, is all aligned toward godliness. This is, in a nutshell, the lesson to us, both a microcosm individually and on a collective level. You can look in those sikhs for more information. But let's talk about some more specifics and different questions that came in in connection to Vayishlach. It says, when Yaakov learned that Esav was coming with 400 armed men, Yaakov prayed. He bought gifts to bribe and appease Esav, and he sharpened his swords and prepared for war. If Yaakov truly believed Hashem would save him, was it a lack of faith to buy gifts and prepare for war? Shouldn't prayer have been enough to get the job done? The answer is, the Ebershter said to us, you pray to me, but I'm also giving you resources. So for someone to just daven, then let's say they're praying for a parnasa, for a livelihood, or they're praying for a shidduch, for marriage, or for something else, or health. And they say, I pray, that's enough, now I can go to sleep. No, the same God that told us to pray and who listens to our prayers says, I also gave you faculties, I gave you intelligence, I gave you resources. If it's a health issue, go to a doctor. Shidduch, make a shtadlis, make the effort. Parnasa, go out and find a job. The blessing is in everything we do. We need to make a keli. So prayer is the beginning, yes, but you have to do everything possible in natural means, including appeasing or war if necessary. We have a similar uh, episode later in the Torah when the Jews are standing by, by the Yamsuf, the Red Sea, the Reed Sea, and the Egyptians are pursuing them. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And they break into four groups. One group says, let's go to war with the Egyptians. One group says, let's surrender and return. One group says, let's pray. The fourth group says, let's jump into the sea. Moshe turns to God and says, and God says, none of the above. I told you, Vayuso, go to Matan go to Harsinai. You should forge ahead. But prayer seems so great. Prayer is part of the process. But we can't just rely on prayer. Prayer plus every effort that we can make. So on the contrary, Yaakov was showing his deep faith that he's not just praying, he's also using every resource at his disposal, as his disposal to be able to try to achieve what he has to achieve. And that's a lesson to us as well. We have to not leave any stone unturned. We do everything we can. Of course, on the foundations, all part of Betachem. It says, uh, That even when you're planting a field, you believe in God, creator of the world, 
the one that gives sustenance to the world, and then you plant. But planting is a natural thing. Because the planting is really the way God said, it's really me, my work, but I'm doing it through the natural means. So you have to do both. You maimon, your faith, as well as doing what you have to naturally do, where my blessings are manifest, and how God answers us is through the natural means of this world. Now, can God do something supernatural? Obviously. And there are prayers that actually achieve that. But we still have to make our effort. And then Hashem will do His part in His way. Okay. Next question. If Yaakov kept all 613 commandments, like it says, in love and garti, says Rashi, taryag misfish shamarti. Garti is the same letters as taryag, which is 613. He's telling Esau, I've kept the 613 mitzvahs. As Rashi explains Garti, I dwelled with Lovin, is Gematir Taryag. Then how could Yaakov marry two sisters, which is clearly against the rules in the Torah? Good. So this question, as you can imagine, has been commentaries have been grappling with from, from the beginning of time. How is that possible? And what does it mean, Taryag Mitzvahs? So there are many different explanations given. Let's just begin in Torah Shlema. Uh, bring several of the commentaries, some medrashim, some say it meant that he learned all the mitzvahs because the fact is he couldn't have performed all the mitzvahs regardless, many, in a physical way. Many of them were not capable of being fulfilled. Things connected to the Beis Amigdash, connected to Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So some say he learned it all. Others say he did it spiritually. That's the general answer given in the in Chassidus, Kaimakola Teda Kula, that the Ovis fulfilled the entire Teda Baruchnius. Except Pris Mila, which God actually commanded to Avram Avinu. The Ramban says that they, they, they only performed the mitzvahs in Eretz Yisrael. But that still doesn't answer, because Rashi does not say that. Rashi says, Tayag mitzvah shamati, which means even with Lovan, which was not in Eretz Yisrael. So the commentaries elaborate on this. Others argue, since it was before Matan the laws did not apply. But that still doesn't answer what Rashi says, Hayag Mitzvah Shamati. What does that mean? There's also commentaries that say he was referring to, Medrash, I believe, that says that he was referring to that I am building a family that is going to perform the Tayag Mitzvah, the Shvatim and their children and grandchildren. So it wasn't just talking about myself. But again, Pshat Shamati means I kept them, I, I upheld them. So there's a classic sikha from the Rebbe Chelikei Lukutis Sikhas, volume 5, on the Ampasha Vayetze, where this question is brought up, because it's an obvious question that every child would ask. Ben Chomesh as we know the Rebbe's approach, a Chomesh you? How do you explain it to Ben Chomesh who will later learn there's a clear prohibition to not marry two sisters? And Yaakov married two sisters. And here we say, Tayag Mitzvah Shamarti. So the Rebbe, after going through all the, many of the explanations, some of them I mentioned and many others, the Rebbe says, very practical response, again, for a pshat, for a pshat, that the fact that the, the Ovis, including Yaakov, kept the Tayag Mitzvahs, was not Mitzvah Tzivri. They were not commanded to do so. By Matan Teda was Mitzvah so they were commanded. That was the whole point of Matan Teda. This was at their own volition. They took it upon themselves. So in scenarios where a mitzvah would in some way defy the menschlichkeit, that the word that Yaakov gave Rachel, that he'll marry her, is not necessarily there. So 
because Bnei Neach and the Ovis were still in the category of not full-fledged halachic Jews because that only happened by Mat and Teda. Well, that, whether that's Pshat or not is another discussion. The Rebbe says that not necessarily Pshat. Uh, you know, that which means like, uh, which is one, another explanation just as I, I, I digress a bit. Because you can say maybe they all converted so then they're not sisters legally. But the Rebbe does, rejects that explanation. But going back to this point, that by Matan they became full-fledged in that sense when they were commanded. So since here they still had the obligation of giving a word, so Tayag Mitzvah Shamati means he kept it at his own volition in general terms. And there were scenarios where he may not have kept something because it was not yet a command. It was only because he wanted to do so. That's essentially the Rebbe's explanation there. So, and as I said, there are many, many other explanations. And therefore, the bottom line is that what Yaakov was saying was that I'm coming armed with the commitments I've made to God, which include the category of 613 mitzvahs. Obviously, as I said earlier, it cannot be that he performed them all physically, exactly as we perform them today. And in many instances, like I said here, it depends on the circumstances, because since it was at his own volition, at his own will, it's very different category. So he didn't, he didn't break any law because any law that he accepted was only because he wanted to accept it. And if something else outweighed it because giving a promise to someone is a mitzvah b'nei neyach, so therefore that would explain how he was able to marry two sisters in that sense. More details you can find in that sicha. Now, is this a full answer on all levels? Absolutely not. It's pshat. Explaining it to a child. That's what the Rebbe adds in this sicha. But this is in addition to all the other explanations, and, um, and, but it also helps us understand the mere fact that um, everybody agrees that the Tayyag Mitzvahs before Mat and Teda were not like afterwards, meaning they were not commanded. And everyone agrees that the category of being a Jew, which is why by Mat and Teda the Jews did convert, even though they were children of Avram Yitzhak Yankov, because the concept of a Jew, according to what it means, happened, began by Mat and Teda. Not Chaz B'Shom that we say that the, the Ovis were non-Jews because also non-Jews really didn't exist. The distinction really wasn't there yet. So it was really more by will that Avram embraced God as did Yitzchok and Yaakov. And then they took upon themselves these mitzvahs. With the one exception, of course, Bris Miller, which was a command that, um, that, that uh, Hashem gave to Avram and to his children. Okay. What is the significance of Yaakov changing his name to Yisrael? If his name was supposed to be Yisrael, why didn't his parents give him that name? Another question in that same spirit. We have a tradition that parents have Ruach HaKadosh, which is a type of mini-prophecy, when choosing the correct name for their baby. So why does Hashem have to come on many, in, on many occasions and change someone's name? Like Avram to Avram, Sarai to Sarah, Yaakov to Yisrael. Did Rivka and Yitzchak make a mistake by wrongly, wrongly naming Yisrael as Yaakov at his birth? So of course the answer is no. They made no mistake at all. The name Yaakov remains his name. So let's first of all, just put, let's unpack this a bit. He did not change his name. The Malach changed his name. In the story in this chapter that after Yaakov remains alone, a Malach, and we know it's Sarish al it's the angel of Esav, confronts uh, Yaakov, and they wrestle till dawn. And he sees that he cannot prevail, the angel. So he dislocates Yaakov's hip. And then, and Yaakov would not let him go. 
until he says, I want you to bless me. So that's when the, the, the angel says that no longer should your name be Yaakov, it should be Yisrael. Later in the chapter, it says it clearly, Hashem says your name is Yisrael, which is why Bnei Yisrael, we're the name Yisrael, but we also say Bnei Yaakov, even afterwards. So first of all, Yaakov did not disappear, the name, God forbid. It's just two names, and as Chassidus explains, they signify two different dimensions of Yaakov's Avodah work. One is Yud Ekev, to be Mamshuk, the Yud, of Yud Kevavke, of Hashem in Ekev, because he held on to the heel of Esav, which means to, to, be, to draw down into even the heel of existence, which is the lowest levels, to make a Diri B'Tachten, by Yetzi Yaakov, Yud Ekev, Be'er Sheva, Sheva Sheva, and where did he go? Harona, he went into the Ekev to bring godliness in, even the wrath of God, which is the name of Haron. So that's that name. Yisrael is Lirosh, and different meanings of Yisrael, even the meaning that, uh, that the angel gave it to him. He said that uh, you wrestled in Alekim Noshim Vatuchal. You wrestled with God, and, and, and meaning his angel, and you prevailed. So Yisrael indicates more Li Reish, Reish in contrast to Ekev. Ekev is heel, Reish is the head. Li Reish, Yaakov is the higher level, where Yaakov, referring to Yaakov in the higher spiritual levels, rather than how he goes down below. So it's like Neshama and Guf. The body is the Ekev. The Neshama is like Li Reish, Olabu Machshava. The Neshama is Yisrael that rise in God's mind in the highest levels, Yisrael Olav Machshava, which is before precedes all of existence. So you have a combination of Yisrael and Yaakov, and each of them have their own particular role to play. Just like we find the names, different names of God, different manifestations of God energy, so too Yaakov has these two names. So that answers most of the questions that were asked here. Know that they did not, his parents gave him exactly the name he should have been given, and then it had to come from the angel of Esau, from the opposite side, the name Lirash, Yisrael, the name of, of, um, of, uh, of the, the power of Yisrael. So that's exactly the way it's meant to be. As far as why Hashem sometimes intervenes, it's, first of all, it's a rare occasion. This doesn't happen every day. You've mentioned Avram, Sarah, those are the only two. You have a few places, Yeshua, you have other few places that are mentioned. So in generally speaking, obviously God is the, 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 <laughs> the master of the universe. The Rabbeim would not mix in, in giving a name, a child a name, because they said, based on the Arizal, that it's a mini prophecy parents have. But Hashem, for whatever reason, historically speaking, who else could change Avram's name from Avram to Avram? It had to be a godly intervention. That did not come from parents. So there are times where that happens, and it's not a contradiction between the two. Hashem is not overruling the parent's name. He's adding a hey in Avram, or with Sarah changing the yud to hey, that Avram shouldn't just be Avram, but Avraham, Ha'av Ha'moin Goyim, a father of all nations. So that's a particular, that actually was Bechalma Saimana, meaning includes Avram plus more. So that is the point here. And again, as far as names go, yes, there are different times names are added. Some names are added, some names are replaced, like in Avram, now it's Avram, we don't say Avram anymore. But in the case of Yaakov, you say Yaakov Yisrael. And you have other names as well for Eden. You have Yeshurun and you have other names that are used, each one, to express a different dimension of their relationship with God and with others and so on. Okay.
Why did Esav's angel attack and wrestle with Yaakov and injure his hip? Since when do angels who are spiritual existences get to physically attack someone? So clearly, if this is the angel, which it doesn't say explicitly in the Pasuk, but if this is Sarishal Esav, he's representing his client, so to speak, and his client is Esav. He was the, the, the angel of Esav. And we know Esav and Yaakov did have their uh, confrontation. They represented two very different realms. So in Kabbalah, Chassidus, Zehari talk about this a lot, the topic of their wrestling, what exactly it signified. In Etera Er, Al-Tareb, discusses, I have a few comprehensive articles that I've written. If you go to MeaningfulLife.com and you write Jack, Jacob's hip or the wrestle... The wrestling angel, the wrestling with the angel, and st- similar themes, you can find I, it's distilled a lot of the chsidis of what it means. And there are many, many meanings behind it. The Ramban, for example, says the displacement of the hip was the root of all the tzaddis. Whenever tzaddikim throughout history would suffer, was all rooted in this displacement of the hip. Because he saw the angel, he cannot prevail over Yaakov. So what he did was he affected at least something, and that would be the wounds that we carry throughout history until Mashiach will come and it will be healed and repaired. In Kabbalah's entire discussion of Yerech Yaakov, what exactly it means, and the level of he interestingly in Zayat it says that Yaakov represents Teda, and the hip represents Temchi Teda, the supporters of Teda, like a hip. It supports the body. So he saw that he cannot affect Teda, so he affected the supporters of Teda. The Zayr says this. In other words, those that support and, and uh, contribute and donate to Teda causes. So the Zayr doesn't say it in the context of organizations, but just as the Temchi Teda, the supporters of Teda. The bottom line is the displacement of the hip was a significant element, and that's why till today it says Al-Kain, that's why we don't eat the Gid Hanosha, the sciatic nerve, and that part of the, the flesh of uh, an animal. All, this is an animal. Why? Because just to honor that displacement. That means that displacement remains with us in some ways because those are the injuries, as I said, of all the, the challenges and all the difficulties, the asudim, the afflictions that we would go through in history. That's what the Ramban says. But the goal, obviously, is to heal that injury and come complete. So, in, in a sense, um, that represents Golos, the general Golis, which of course is what Esav was, the main Golis, Golis Edem, the Golis we are in right now, the long Golis that comes after the Second Temple's destruction by the Romans, which originate from Esav. At the end of this week's chapter, Rashi says, Magdiel Zuremi, Magdiel was one of the, one of the kingdoms that derived, that rooted an, an ancestry from Esav. Magdiel Zuremi, that's Rome. Rome comes from the word Rom, like a great exalted. So the Roman Empire, which ultimately turns into the Western, the Western world, is represented by Esau, and we've known the conflicts from the moment they were in pregnancy. In Rivka's womb, they were already fighting. The Umulum Yemuts, two nations, and that would be the story of history to the point where Yaakov and Esau, as I explained earlier, will come together and join. But the Sikha from Vayeshev Tav Shinun Beis, the joining of that we're able to engage with the Western world and not be hurt by it, on the contrary, to transform it into as will be when Mashiach comes. So you see all of this is part of a larger um, panorama of history 
not just things, events that happened then, they actually played themselves out in our lives today. And as I said, there's more on this topic. I, check, I, I suggest, I highly recommend checking out those articles that I mentioned. There's also much said about the Vayavik, the dust that Ra raised as a result of their wrestling. Why, why is it significant, the dust? And that dust also has many, many implications and many meanings and significance in the context of our own work. But as I said, it's explained there, and I've also spoke about the previous episode, so we'll suffice with that. Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, can it be said that Reuven is worse than Esau? Esau sold his birthright, but Reuven lost his birthright because he sinned by violating the sanctity of his father's marriage. When he yeah, changed the situation where Leah would be with Yaakov instead of Rachel. At the very least, we can say Esau respected his parents and Reuven did not, which is a direct violation of one of the Ten Commandments. Well, I wouldn't take it to that extreme exactly to compare Reuven to Esau. Um, I believe there are places in Medrash that it talks about what Reuven did. And yes, it did have implications. And it affected Reuven. Um, affected Rachel as well, for that matter. But that was a different discussion with the Dodaim with the mandrakes that, uh, that Leah gave her. But uh, it's a separate discussion. Let's not connect the two. So I wouldn't take it to that level. I think each story in Torah has to be looked at independently and look at its lessons. Remember, Esau uh, may have respected his parents, at least openly, but he fundamentally defied them in every possible way. Uh, Reuven was one of the Shvatim. We say, Mitoshe Shlema. That Yaakov's children were all complete. Did they make mistakes? Yes, but you can't really compare it. By Yitzchak, you say and you don't say you don't say his home was a complete and wholesome one. In addition to the fact, Reuven is one of the Yudbe Shifte Yudke, one of the 12 tribes, the holy tribes, and many schusim as well. Even the selling of Yosef, Reuven was not directly involved, try to protect. And there's a, so bottom line is the story is more complete when you read all the details and just not talk about one episode. This episode did happen and we're told about it because it means there are lessons for us. And um, yes, in the context of what a child should, should not do regarding their parents. And therefore we learn those lessons. But I would not put them in the same league or compare the two. Okay. Dina's parents explicitly forbade her from leaving their tent. Dina disobeyed Yaakov and Leah and went out to meet the woman in town and attend a music and dancing festival where she was assaulted by Shechem. Can we say the assault by Shechem was partly Dina's fault because she didn't obey her parents? Well, no, absolutely not. This is, uh, of course, today, this would be a very controversial statement that you blame someone, the victim. We never blame the victim. She was a victim. The question about her going out, we'll talk about in a moment, because Rashi does say, that she went outward, woman, so to speak, like her mother Leah. But the Rebbe has a fascinating sikh on this topic, that he uh, that is printed in Chilik Lamed Hay, Lukute Sikhis, where he explains that Lamal Yusa, that her going out was not a negative that some people seem to interpret it because it was like not Sneezdik. God forbid, the Rebbe says. 
going out was actually a positive thing to influence those around her. But I'll speak about that again in a moment. So the answer is absolutely no. We don't say that at all. Um, with the question about Shimon and Levi, what they did to Shechem is another discussion. But there's no question that they violated Adina and it was an absolute crime, period. And we never blame somebody. And even if she did something wrong by going out, even if you were to say that, that still does not justify and say, no, she's at fault. Now, regarding the faith story of, Yitzhan, of her going out, it's a bigger question which someone else has written, and I want to read their question, and then I shall explain it more in detail. Here we go. What's the deal with Dina? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I hope you can read this question on the next program and not wait until we read about Dina again next year. I don't know if I fulfilled that, but I definitely am reading it now. I was wondering if you could discuss Dina, who is a very enigmatic character in the current Parshis. She's the only daughter of Yaakov, and it seems from the message that she was meant to be another boy, but her gender was changed when Leah prayed that Rachel not be demoted to having less tribes than her maidservants, co-wives. Is her identity an accident? Okay. In contrast to her 11, her, to her 11 brothers born in Parshas Vayetze, no reason or significance is described in the Pesukim about her birth. We're also told in the message that Dina wanted to influence Esav, for the better, but Yaakov prevented her from doing this and hid her in a box, fearing Esav would violate her. And yes, Yaakov was then punished, I'm adding, because not Dina wanted necessarily, but Dina could have married him and maybe brought him back to Tshuva. This is all part of the Sikha that I mentioned in Chelek Lamed in volume 35 in Lukutis Sikhas, which we'll get. In Parshas Vayishlach we read the sordid story of Dina's violation by Shechem and how her brothers violently avenged her honor. But after this, Dina is not mentioned again for the remainder of the Book of Bereshis, except in the tally of Yaakov's family members going down to Mitzrayim. What happened to her? How did she react to the whole Shechem incident? What did she do with the rest of her life? Another mother says that she is the, Can- the Canaanist married to her brother Shimon. How is this possible? She is seemingly not present when her brothers received a blessing from Yaakov before his death. Why did she not receive it? Why did she not receive a blessing? If you could shed some light on the mysterious Dina according to Chassidus, that would be much appreciated. Thank you. Okay. So I would base and go to the Sikh of volume 35 of the Kutta Sikhs, where the Rebbe establishes a few key points which can help us understand. I can't say that I did a full comprehensive research on Dina's life and all these enigmatic elements that you described and probably more, but you can get at least the general picture of it. There the Rebbe explains that why would the Tater Bechal in general talk negatively about someone? And here saying, because why does the Tater say Basleya, not Yaakov, because she was like her mother, same personality, Yatsonis. She went out. She was, I don't say the word aggressive, but she was assertive, if you wish which everyone interprets as being a negative. A woman's glory, the princess's glory and majesty is internal. And the man goes out. And the Rebbe turns around and says, no, Yetzonis has a very positive element to it. It's not, God forbid, in any way compromising modesty or tzniyas, or it means influencing others with that internal dignity of a woman without any compromise. 
And that's what happened. That Dina could have, that's what the Torah says, Dina could have influenced even Esau. And Yaakov was punished because of that. He was punished because he put her in a box that Esau should not see her. So Esau, the same thing, when she went out, her personality, like her mother's, had the dignified personality of being able to influence others all within the realm without compromising an iota of modesty. So Yitzhanis is just two different ways of influencing. So when we say that a woman, the Rebbe explains, that the princess's glory is internal within, he's not saying she doesn't influence, she influences in a much different way, in a much more gentle way, in a much more internal way. There's sikhs about this also, Noyach, I believe, in Tafshin and Beis. The Rebbe speaks about it at length as well. Two different ways of how we influence. Also, just to connect it to Rebbe Tzachayim Mushka in Chav Beis Shvat, Tafshin Nun Beis as well. A kuntas the Rebbe gave out to everyone, distributed. So he talks there about the name Chayim Mushka, and he says that husband and wife, both are partners in making a dira b'tachtenim, to make a home in this world for the divine. And in a microcosmic level, in their own personal home. The man's main role, as the Gemara says, is to tame the elements. Like it says, the man goes out in the field and he brings in the grain and the woman turns it into bread, into challah. He comes and brings flax, he brings material and she turns it into garments. So the Rebbe said, Chaya Mushke is not just the dira. A dira can be the shelter. You have a roof over your head. But a dira, also a dira noah, a beautiful home. A beautiful home is hinted to in the word Chaya and Mushka. Chaya means vitality. And Mushka comes from mus- musket, a beautiful scent, an aroma, a perfume. So she introduces that. And Adirana is not just a, a superficial thing, not just cosmetic. It actually, when you have a beautiful home, it expands the mind of everyone that enters that home. So in a way, the influence is just of a different sort. And that like turns around the whole picture of Dina. So perhaps with that basis, you can understand many of the enigmas. Because a man is maybe more what you see is what you get. The role of a man is to go out in a very expressive way. A man, is, his personality is to conquer. Obviously, we need to use the word conquer in a holy way. Not like Ishmochama, conquer as in conquest and in uh, and, and bloodshed and violence. But in a third way of conquer the elements of this world and turn them into, to, into uh, refine them and turn them into a home for God. And the woman's manner is not that fashion, which is why a woman is far more the mystique, the feminine mystique is far more enigmatic. Because on one hand, you see the influence. On the other hand, you don't see it openly. Like you see with mothers. Children are deeply shaped by their mothers. But, but the more expressive way, sometimes you'll see it in the father later as we, children grow older. But those quiet moments that mothers spend with their children, nurturing them and caring for them and nursing them. In addition to the nine months of a, of a child in its mother's womb, which is the most intimate connection, it's not very obvious. We don't know what's going on in that womb. But we know that the child is being taught the entire Torah. So there's a deep connection that in many ways is far more kfudah pnima, much more internal, much more intimate. And perhaps that's why in general, the story of a woman in the Torah, which is describing the quintessential feminine spirit, energy, is one that is understated in the sense it's not about so expressive. And that's why Dina perhaps makes only appearances at certain moments that are significant, but she definitely played a tremendous role. 
and, uh, and, uh, and obviously much more can be said on this topic, but the ultimate lesson is that both man and woman, each in their own way, are here to charge to transform this world and turn it into a beautiful divine home. And the woman with her gentleness and her sensitivity and her intuition has a particular strength in that regard. And Dina represented that, as the Rebbe explains in that sikha, again, look in volume 35 in the sikha by Yishlach on this story about Dina. Okay. As far as the blessings go, I need to look up in Medrash whether Yaakov did bless her, but it's just not written in the Torah. It could also be the same reason. Maybe the blessing was more tsunua, was more, was more concealed. Maybe he gave her a blessing, but it was not documented, at least not in the written Torah, for the same reason that I just described. Because those blessings are far more inner, inward rather than more expressive. Okay, like the example the difference between the sun and the moon. The sun is louder, more powerful heat, light. But the moon, which is just a reflection of the sun, has a mystique to it. The moon is not just a mirror image of the sun. We're makadr we sanctify the moon. We're compared to the moon. If the moon was just a, 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 a minuscule reflect, reflection of the sun, then, it's, then the sun has everything that the moon has. But the moon has something that, no, it has that element of change, the shift, the renewal, and that's a unique thing, but it's, it is an internal type of energy. It's not as loud and expressive, but it has its own haunting glow, and it's really what the Jewish people are compared to. David hu ha-kotten, Yaakov hu ha-kotten, Hamoyer ha-kotten, so-called the cotton, which is in a sense, it's a smaller luminary, but it's in its cottonness, in its smallness, in its humility, it has even more power, which is why in the future the moon will become even greater than the sun, as great as the sun, and then in some ways even more greater than the sun, Malchus, in the language of Chassidus, will be mashpia into Zoh, into the sun, into the mashpia. The cave to save of Gover, that the woman will, that the woman will be transmitting energy into the male in contrast to how it is today, because she has that inner, deeper, more core type of divine energy. Okay. A general question that came in, that have come in over the weeks, and maybe I'll use this opportunity to invite all of you. I please welcome you to chassidahsupply.com um, is the website where you can submit any question anonymously, completely anonymously, because it's a forum, we don't have any way to trace it. So you can ask any question, nothing is taboo, please feel free to ask. Just because there are many questions and I am backed up, it'll take time sometimes to address it. I try to sometimes bunch them together by topic or connect it to the Pasha or to the time we're in. Please use that and you'll also find there are many resources including all the archives of this program and the essays and the creative submissions of the contests that we ran in the past years of people applying chassidus to a particular contemporary challenge or issue. I will also mention, I mentioned last week, that we will be doing a campaign. Hanukkah time, we will be doing a crowdfunding campaign. If anybody's interested in helping us, whether it's with a donation or whether it's bringing people together to donate a certain amount, we really survive on this. These are free programs. A lot of work goes into it. So this is your time. This is the time of the year that I ask you to... to um, reciprocate in all with goodwill and in love. This is no obligation, all in a good way. So please, uh, if you want to, other, any other way helping us, which can be through whether it's corporate sponsors or reaching out or just letting people know about it, just write to us at chassidahsupply.com. 
please leave us your email address or phone number and we will contact you and hopefully do something together that will really create uh, change in expanding and, uh, and growing this program and many other programs like this. Okay, so to continue on, some stories omitted from the Torah. Why is it that so many important stories are omitted from the written Torah while other seemingly minor stories are mentioned explicitly in detail? For example, Avram in the fire, making passerby, making passerby, bless Hashem, etc. These are only written in the, in the Medrash, in the oral Torah. But things like the hunger, the fight with Hagar, the rescue of Lot, are mentioned explicitly in detail. Okay. Well, firstly, we have a Rashi that talks about it, that you see when Eliezer, Eved Avram, went to find a bride for Yitzchak, so it's repeated three times, the story. What, ya- what Avram told him, and then what he told them, and then how they repeated. And Rashi says, Yofisichosan shall avdi ovas mitiroshan shalbonov. That it's more beautiful and more precious, the so called, not casual, but the talk, the, the common conversation of the servants of the patriarchs, than the tater of their children. Which some explain is that's that what does that mean exactly? Tater, the whole tater is meant to teach tater. So Chassidus explains that the sechosin of Avdi Azas means that's bringing tater even to so-called more pedestrian matter, matters, which is the kavon of tater to transform this world. Some explain with that the idea that the tater just chooses in that context what is most important is to give us that message. However, it still does not explain why there's so many significant things that seem to not be addressed and others that are addressed at length, relatively speaking. And the answer is, remember, Tater is Melosh and Heira, directive. The Tater is, is not a history book. It's not here to tell us a chronological story in every detail. Till, till Avram is 75 years old, we don't really hear about him except his birth. And then there are certain episodes that are elaborated on. Just to drive the point home, the first Sefer of Teir, Chumash Bereshis, covers a period of almost 20, over 2,000 years. The next four books cover 40 years from when they leave Egypt. And Pasha Boy, 40 years. They leave Egypt and then the end of Bamidbar and then Devarim repeats the last 37 days of Moshe's life covers 40 years. Seems quite disproportionate. Because the Teda is not a history book. The Teda is is coming to teach us a blueprint for life. And whatever you need for this blueprint, that's what is told. That's what we're told. That's why, even though obviously you could say, hey, one second, why is this detail not mentioned? Or this detail is elaborated upon? Because everything that's elaborated upon in the written Torah is part of that blueprint. What about the oral Torah? The oral Torah interprets and elaborates and embellishes. That's also a directive. But the primary directives, you can say the major part of the blueprint is the written Torah, and the Medrashim and the Gemaris that explain the Torah or elaborate and tell us more stories, break it down further. They also are directives, but you can say they're sub-directives within the main blueprint of Istakko Baraiso Bara Alma that God looked into the Torah and created the world. So that we need to know. Yihir Akiya. 
The Medrash will tell you details about that light or about that firmament and so on. So that answers the question, how does the Torah decide which details to include in every narrative? Okay. So we covered the Parsha, we covered some of its lessons. I want to move now to a bunch of questions that have been asked. Um, I mean, we've been doing this program now for 370, this is the 379th episode. A few people have asked me, they said, you know, earlier episodes you used to talk about very controversial and difficult topics. I think I still cover difficult topics as much as not intentionally, but based on the questions. But I said, because a lot of the issues, whether it was sexual issues or issues with um, pain and uh, divorce and uh, dysfunctionality, I addressed them extensively. And even though it's always worthwhile repeating and reviewing because, firstly, people still have the questions and are still dealing with these challenges, unfortunately. But I do rely a lot that since I just discussed some of these matters, that I don't, I'm not going to go over everything I already discussed and rather refer, and it's easy to do so. If you go to chassidusapply.com, uh, you can search by name. Any word, any keyword, any topic you want to address, you'll find it there. As a matter of fact, the YouTube version also has as well as on chassidahsupply.com, has timestamps, which means that, that every, every hour show or hour and 10-minute show program has topics, and you just click on the topic, has an, a, a number there that goes straight to that place where I speak about it. We do that every week, so it makes it a lot easier to, um, to uh, go to the areas, the topics that you're interested in. But there are, unfortunately, since we're still not, the Geula is not here in the fullest sense of the word, there are challenged challenging questions and issues which I'm going to read a few of them one is going to be the area of Shalom Bias um, which is I have a lot of questions that have come in over the months and I began speaking about it a little last week I'll speak about it now some more but I want to begin with something which is a painful topic but needs to be addressed I'm almost sure I did address it in the past but um, it's a new question so let me go there this is about abusive educators and again, I really loathe reading these questions. I loathe talking about this, to be honest. But how can we not talk about it? These are real issues affecting ourselves, our children, our schools. So as, as, taste, as tasteless, uh, distasteful, I should say, these topics are, but they're part of our reality, and we need to address them and do anything possible to remedy, because that's the goal. This is not about sensationalism. It's about how do we do to, to make things better. Okay. Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. My husband and I have had the privilege to raise a beautiful Chabad family together, ten children, B'liyayin Hara. Almost all are married, and we are blessed with many Eneklach, grandchildren. Life is good, thank God, Baruch Hashem. We feel very fortunate, and we have been very happy with the Chabad schools and yeshivas that our children have gone to. Many of our children are on shlichus, and the ones that went into business are leading chassidish lives. Our youngest child went to seminary this year in Eretz Yisrael and of course had to come home because of the virus. She has been home with us for three months and we have enjoyed her company and speaking to her about her seminary experiences. Our question to you is as follows. She has told us a story. She has told a story after the story about, without mentioning names, the Menahelis, of this particular seminary, doing or saying things to the girls that I would say are downright abusive 
and damaging. For example, this principal called in my daughter's roommate and told her that she is a shiksa because she was wearing colored nail polish. The principal continued to berate her and tell her how low, how low she thought of her. There are many, many other examples of her shaming girls in public and just not reacting or acting properly as a menahelis. Is this someone that the Rebbe, the Rebbe would want in charge of a Chabad Mesut? One word like that about her nails and being a shiksa could throw a fragile and vulnerable girl off the deep end. What would the Rebbe say about an educator who is supposed to be a role model and for girls who are not, such, are not at such a vulnerable stage in their lives? I'm sorry, girls who are at such a vulnerable stage in their lives and someone who is doing damage instead of good. Someone who by their actions is not competent but was put into that position because the seminary is run as a family business. We would appreciate your hearing your opinion on this. We were absolutely horrified when our daughter opened up to us. She actually was crying. Thank you very much for your Sunday night lectures. It gives us inspiration for the whole week. Now, I read it exactly as is, obviously without any names, and I'm not looking to point fingers. So the Rebbe says, Samach Tzedek says, if the hat fits, it fits. And let's not even talk about who it is or not. That's not what I want to address. If this whole story is not true, I'd be the happiest person. And I'm not going to say because someone wrote a note to me makes it true. That's not how it works. In Torah, you have to establish things. I would not just assume that all this is factual, not because anyone's writing intentionally. Maybe something was, the girl, maybe the way she reported it and so on. But again, I want to make this clear. I'm not questioning the validity of this. I'm just saying that before you go and do something about something, you really always want to confirm exactly what happened. Context is critical. But I'm assuming, let's assume all this is correct, exactly as is. So obviously, especially, there's no room for abuse, period, in, the, in Yiddishkeit, in Teda, and in the world, for that matter. It's called Menschlichkeit. I mentioned it before, regarding Yaakov and Rachel and Leah. So the idea of abuse is, goes, is antithetical. Let me make it very clear. Without, I mean, it's, it seems to be obvious, and it doesn't even have to be said, but I'll say it anyway. Abuse is antithetical to everything that God, Torah, Yiddishkeit represents, period. There's absolutely never room for abuse. I know maybe someone just has to state it that way. Because abuse means that you're violating the dignity of a human being created in the divine image. It's not just you're hurting a person. That alone is enough. But it's the Abishtu's person. This is created by God. No one has a right to do that. Not verbally. Not physically, not emotionally, not psychologically, not with body language, and definitely not in worse ways. It's just not acceptable. Lashon Hara is considered a violation. You kill three people with that, including the person you speak about. So that's number one. If a person behaves in that fashion and you see it, you have to react. You have to either, but you want to react in a way that's going to be productive. I've had situations where I saw something like that and I reacted and the father started yelling at me, who are you to mix in? And I don't know if I was helpful. So reacting has to also be done wisely. Now, in the context of a school where you have children that are your care, this is like God's children, it has to be a thousandfold times more because the educator not only doesn't have a right to be abusive, your whole role is to help refine these children, help bring them up in a way that they will shape their lives to be productive and healthy people. So 
is, should be zero tolerance for educators who in any way violate, insult, humiliate, abuse children. You know, there's big talk about standards in schools. Do you just throw out a student if they don't live up to the standards? This is nefoshis we're talking about. We're talking about souls. You don't play with souls. Now, yes, obviously you have to weigh pros and cons if a child, a student, is hurting other children and other factors. But you have to be careful. You don't just throw people. You don't dismiss people. You definitely don't humiliate people. There are many ways to talk to someone in a loving way if you think that they should have higher standards. So again, I don't want to, this is not a court of law here. I did not hear witnesses or evidence. This is a letter written, a heartfelt letter written by parents they, from their daughter, hearing from their daughter as she was crying. So I'm speaking in that language in a personal way. I'm not here to accuse anyone because that requires a certain way to approach it. I'm talking now the concept and the principle of it. And I think it's critical that all of us not be part of the problem, which means to be quiet, but to be part of the solution to do something. Do something again. You don't accuse anyone of anything unless you know for sure. But we have to demand the highest possible standards. And this, by the way, is also true of parents. Parents can also be abusive and humiliating and berating and critical. And they do affect children and sometimes even more than educators because these are the very parents of the child. So I think I made my point and uh, much more to be said. I would definitely want to hear from any of you because this should be put out on the, on the, on the table, should be spoken about. The awareness of a problem is have the cure. If it's not talked about, often the infection festers and gets worse. And we should have the highest possible standards. Remember how the Rebbe spoke, I remember by Fabrengen, about that today we do not hit children. The most you have a konchik, a, 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 a staff or a, on the wall, just as a reminder. But when you're talking about a child, you're talking about, you're talking about a nefeshalikis, you're talking about a beautiful soul. And even though some children, everyone disbehaves and we need discipline, but discipline has to be done in a chassidish and loving way. Well, going from the frying pan to the fire, reporting a dangerous head of a Chabad Mason. What do you do if the head of my children's school is mentally ill? And I'm, I'm not laughing. I meant just, the, just the, the, the graphic description. And dangerously, and danger, and is a danger physically. And the leaders keep on saying, send your children to the school, as if it's the Rebbe's Mesut. Are you allowed to report the head of the school? And to whom do you do so in Lubavitch or anywhere else? Well, first thing is, now you're talking dangerous uh, even though all forms of abuse are dangerous, but if you're referring in this context, I'm very careful, and I want to make it very important, you don't just throw out labels, people are mentally ill. Number one is you have to establish that. Number two is who says you have to go announce it. If indeed, what I would look at, if this person came to me with such an accusation, I would say you have to go to Rabonim or to authorities, and first you need a discreet and very private investigation, if this is true. First, you have to establish. Maybe it wasn't exactly this. Maybe something else. You have to definitely look into it. Because remember, we have to also protect the innocent of accusations. I know people who have accused principals and faculties of things simply because they were vindictive. And there was no basis for it. Or there was a very little basis for it. So the first thing, the teres teres emes. 
we're not beginning and assuming anything. If a person says something, we assume they're saying it's correct, but you still have to verify it before you do anything about it. So if, if that's the first thing that must be done. Verification, establishing that these are facts. If indeed it's proven that a person is dangerous to students and so on, then you begin, again, all discreet. I would not go to the public. You try to reach to some of the authorities, responsible people in that institution or organization, and ask them to look into it. And if they stonewall you, yes, then you start having different types of pressure. Again, always coming, I would always do it discreetly. Um, sometimes things leak out. That's not good, because then you don't want a court of public opinion, which cannot always, cannot, not always helpful, because then it's not really being done in a clean way. Everybody starts weighing in. Everybody has their own opinions. So it has to be done discreetly. If after all that, that doesn't work, so first of all, you're always entitled to take your child out of any school. I would look to solve the problem, not just to run away from it. That's just as a, an aside. And I'd be pressured just because someone says so. But I'm always careful because when I hear loaded words like this, I start wondering, it sounds like, make, is it coming from strong emotion? Something happened. Is there a truth to it? Is it not true? And so on. Again, I'm not questioning the writer. I just think that as objective people, we have to look at it from all angles and then act accordingly based on what we discover and use whatever powers we have to address it. Now, if someone is literally dangerous, as in criminally dangerous, yes, and I would go to Rabbanim, but I would ultimately push toward if it's criminal, criminal is criminal. You have to go to the police at times, like we know recently in areas of abuse or molestation and other stuff like that. Okay. The next question is Shalom bias issues. The thing is, because of time limits, what I'm going to do is I'm going to move that to next week. I wanted to address it, but I see time is, is running out. I'll just address the Chassidus question. And we'll give it more time so I don't have to feel rushed on the more uh, Shalom bias issues. Okay, Chassidus question, completely unrelated. Hi, can you please clarify in simple English what Tanya means when it writes that our Teira, Tefillah, prayer, reach a certain world reality, and what it means that certain parts of Teira stem from certain worlds, and what that practically means for us. Okay, so you're most likely referring to uh, chapter 16 in Tanya, chapter 39 and 40, where he talks about how a person with a, a te, mitzvah, with kavana, uh, basically the avavayira of a person and their aveda, both in davening and learning, reach different levels. With kavana, can reach a higher level. For example, he says, reaches elam habriya. Love and awe, love and reverence that are more natural reach the world of Yitzhira. What this means and what's the practical application. So briefly, the worlds are not to be seen as planets. They're not physical worlds. They're dimensions. So all the worlds are right here with us. When I say right here, is dimensions. I'll just use an example from science. When you look at a physical object, let's say water. So we know water is made up of elements, namely hydrogen and oxygen which in turn are made up of molecules, which in turn are made up of atoms, which in turn are made up of subatomic particles, and finally sub-subatomic, sub-sub-sub, however deep you can go down the rabbit hole. Now, as you'll say, well, when I look at water, which one is it? The answer is, is dimensions. Existence is not one-dimensional. 
The same thing like when a person cries, we know the crying is coming from emotions. Emotions are not physical. The emotions affect us in a certain way. It causes te- uh, teardrops to develop in our tear ducts, and then we cry. Without getting into why it manifests that way. Or a smile on the face is reflecting an inner joy, an inner satisfaction. So when we think of the worlds, think of them as dimensions. On the most obvious dimension, a person, let's say, sitting and learning Tehran or Davening. Beautiful. But Chassidus explains this, and Kabbalah explains, what does that generate? It generates energy. It generates so-called the spiritual molecules or the spiritual subatomic particles and that of the worlds. It can generate energy in the world of Asiya, in the world of Yitzira, in the world of Bria, in the world of Atzila. So when we talk about different levels of Teir and Tfila, or different mitzvahs for that matter, what effect they have in so-called the cosmic order, the deeper forces that work beneath the surface, that's what we're saying. That each level of Aveda has its particular forces that it generates. Just like if I asked you a favor. So you could say, I'd like to, oh, yes, I'll do this favor for you. Well, let's say you don't want to do it. And I, and I push, not pressure, I push, I, uh, I try to evoke some of your compassion. What am I doing? I'm evoking a deeper feeling. That initially you would have said no, but once you hear the, the plea, it evokes the compassion, and your compassion pushes you to say yes. So Teda and Tefillah and all mitzvahs, all Aveda, so to speak, push those type of buttons in the heavens, now, heavens means not up there, it means the inner dimensions of existence. So the practical application is exactly that. Now, Tanya is coming to explain, and the same thing with other Maimorim and Chassidus and Kabbalah in general, how every mitzvah is mamshach something. Like you sit in a sukkah, a certain amshach, makifim debina. You put on a talus, a certain makif. Tzitzis, a different tefillin, shibut haleva amoyach. It binds the mind and the heart. So every mitzvah and every teda is generating energy that would, like, just like when you eat, and drink, and exercise, and sleep, what is it doing? It's regenerating, and refreshing, and nourishing your body. So you need calcium, and you need vitamin A, and vitamin B, and vitamin C, and different minerals, and vitamins, and, and, and nutrients. So too, ruchniyazdik, and a shaman needs nutrients as well. So each mitzvah generates a different nutrient, so to speak, which could be either a level like a sphere, like chachmabina, or it could be a world, which is a dimension of energy, that includes in it Chachma Bina and the different... And that's why you see mitzvahs, they say, when you do this mitzvah, you're generating a yichud of Chachma uh, Bina. Or you're connecting Zah and Malchus. Or you mamshik Zah into this. These are all Kabbalistic terminology of the de- generating of the different energies. And the application is obviously helps us understand what makes us tick and helps us understand where we need sometimes more strength, more strength, more like more vitamins and where we need harnessing and so on. So if you know, for example, that there's certain area you need more strength, that mitzvah, you do that, that generates that energy from that particular world into your, into your being, into the world, and ultimately makes you a healthier person that aligns your faculties, as the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, that evolve from the ten spheres above. Because we want to align our chesed, our love, our discipline, our compassion, mahu chanun, afata chanun, we want to align our beings to the divine structure, the divine intention. And we do that by aligning ourselves to these spheres and to these worlds that we are generating through our different work. Okay. So with that, we conclude My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 379.
Everyone have a Frelech Chodesh Kislev, continuing, taking the Geula of Yud Kislev, marching with it into the next day, which will be Yudalit Kislev, the Rebbe's and the Rebbetson's anniversary, Tafrish Peites, and, um, and from that to Yutas Kislev and to Chanukah, illuminated and Simcha and Geula Dika, Chesidish, a month of Kislev in every possible way. Everyone have a good, a good week and be well. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Thank you.